So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers episode number 171. I'm Frederick Dunn and this is The Way to Be. So I'm glad you're here. Thanks for spending your time with me. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below and you'll see every topic in order. So you have a lot going on today. What's going on outside? Well, the cold weather's already hit overnight. I know for some of you, you're still baking in the heat, but it's 45 degrees Fahrenheit overnight here, which is 7.2 Celsius. And then of course the temperature rose and right now outside it is 74 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 23 Celsius. So these are flying again. I have a lot going on today. These are topics that were submitted during the past week. If you want to submit a topic yourself for consideration for next Friday's Q&A, please follow the link down in the video description. For those of you who are listening on podcasts through Podbean, the way to be, welcome. And for the rest of you, I'm glad that you're here. Let's get started. The very first question today comes from Tammy Lynn from South Dakota. This is one I almost bypassed. And that's because it deals with a topic that uh, a lot of people fall for in social media. I mean, that's it. But I'll tell you what it is. Let's go right on. I have a question about honeybees saving other honeybees. Do they do that? In the video, there were honeybees rescuing another honeybee that was covered in honey because they knew she was in trouble. I'd like to know your thoughts. Thank you for your information as always. Well, thank you, Tammy Lynn, for writing in. And the reason I was going to skip over it is oftentimes videos are made um, so that everybody will watch them. We all want people to watch our videos. And beekeeping videos, there's piles of beekeepers out there. So people watch multiple videos. And I think that this particular video, I googled it and looked for bees rescuing bees and things like that. And... Uh, the more you know about bees, the less that video, for example, would apply to you. So let's talk about it. And I can only find one video. And for those of you who submit questions like this, please provide a video link or a video title or where I could find it to make sure we're talking about the same thing. But I think I'm on track. Um, what it is, is someone found a bee. Bees often get stuck in honey. If you've ever extracted honey and had bees flying around, one is apt to fly in and land in your honey. Whenever there's a lot of surface area for the honey that bees would not encounter inside the hive, uh, they instantly can get into jeopardy. So the bee gets in there and I've seen bees when I'm sitting out there with the jar, particularly when we're doing the extraction direct from the hive right into the jar. Bee will fly in there if you didn't put a cover on it. And you have to fish the bee out, of course, but the honey is not going to be ruined by the presence of the bee. But one thing I noticed that was really interesting to me is while this bee is drowning, it is sinking into the honey and I have to get out my chopsticks or my kebab sticks or whatever to get them out. Uh, its tongue was still going and it was still drinking honey in while it was immersed in the honey. So I'd like to explain a couple of things. One is that... Uh, People think a bee needs to breathe through its mouth. So in other words, if it's taking a thick syrup in, can it still breathe? Well, yeah, because honeybees and other insects respirate through their abdomens. So the honeybee in particular, bumblebees, that's why we see their abdomen always pulsing, always pulsing. It's part of their circulatory system as well. So 
it's also how they breathe. So if you want to suffocate a bee, its abdomen would be immersed. And so then would a bee be in trouble? Sure. And this is why a lot of people, when they're collecting, uh, doing extractions from houses and things like that, you'll see them cutting out the comb and putting rubber band around it and into wooden frames and putting that in a hive box. But you'll also notice the most experienced people that are doing that, when they get frames full of honey, they collect the honey separately and they store it and transport it separately. Because they've dismantled all this comb, what's running into the bottom? Honey. And if the bees get stuck in it, they die. So you end up with a bunch of dead bees. That's why they really favor the brood comb and put that in frames. And when they take that with them, they separate it. And that's because an open surface area with honey can trap bees and other insects. So like a lot of things, I do my own experiments, but I've seen the videos where there's a honey bee. It's obviously fallen into honey or heaven forbid somebody intentionally dipped a bee in honey just so they could create a scenario where a bunch of bees gathered around it and they appear to be saving this poor bee that's covered in honey. What they're really doing, and I'm sorry if this, you know, ruins your idea about bees having empathy towards other bees and wanting to save them. They're after the sugar syrup. They're after the nectar. They're after that sugar fix that they want so bad. And this plays out with other species as well. For example, like I described with the honeybee before getting to the honey, we have yellow jackets, yellow jacket wasps, and they often dive bomb into the honey too, and then you have to take them out. And I took a yellow jacket wasp out while I was extracting honey, and I put it on a bench, and I was sure it was dead. So, but what happened? Next thing you know, a bunch of honeybees are all over it because anywhere there is spilled honey, honeybees will come to collect it. This is how we kick off robbing incidents when we're pulling apart beehives. If we spend too much time out there, when there's a dearth or when there's a huge amount of foragers out there and they're just looking everywhere, any available sugar source and honey at the top of the chain there would be an attraction for them and they all descend on it. So before I knew it, there's a bunch of honeybees uh, on top of this wasp and they clean up all the honey around it. And of course the wasp that looked dead before now flew away. So the question is, we could have made a video about that and said, look at these honeybees saving this wasp that fell into the honey. But when they're done, they just fly away. You could do the same with a rock, with any kind of bug. And I even have, and I did post video about this, uh, honeybees, as we know, don't fly as early as wasps do. In other words, when it's colder outside, wasps have the advantage. And I don't know why that is, but they're able to fly and forage quicker than the honeybees can. So often honeybees find themselves in a fixed position overnight. Sometimes you'll see them on flowers. Sometimes you'll see them next to drinkers and things like that. And if you have a feeding station and so on. Uh, if you open feed, and a lot of people do, they open feed sugar syrup during periods of dearth, particularly after the final nectar draw is done. So after the honey flow is done, the honey supers are off, some people put out open feed stations. I've done that myself in the past, and that's because it takes the pressure off of the hives and the colonies themselves so that the foragers don't end up attacking, raiding, and robbing them as they would if they had no other sources out there. So by providing open feed, we 
take away that edge a little bit and give those foragers something to do besides ping on and rob others. But at an open feeding station, um, the honeybees tend to stick with the feeding station too late into the day. And then the nighttime comes and bees don't fly well in low light. And then when it gets dark, they hunker down and they stay there all night by themselves. So in the morning, what happened was in this video scenario, uh, the honeybee is not yet warmed up. So it's clinging to a brick next to a feeding station. And it has a little bit of honey and sugar syrup on it. So not honey, sugar syrup specifically. I don't put out honey for open feeding. And the wasp showed up and glommed right onto the honeybee and licked the honeybee completely clean and flew away. Wasps themselves do not eat meat. The wasp that's feeding its own brood, but later in the year, they don't have brood, see? So things change. So wasps and hornets and bees, they all are after sucrose. So if they can get sugar syrup, they'll go anywhere to get it. So it licked this bee clean and flew away and the bee eventually warmed up and then it also flew away. So was that bee rescued or was it just relieved of any residue that it had left over from the sugar syrup? I say it's the sugar syrup. So I took a long way around the barn to answer that question, but I wanted to kind of explain it. You could dip a rock in honey, put it on the landing board of a beehive and the bees would appear to be saving the rock or gathering honey from the rock. So I'll let you decide on that, but how terrible would it be? Let's think of it this way. If honeybees really did show concern for other honeybees, if they really did go and attempt to rescue every imperiled honeybee that was out there, uh, that would be tough because it would use a lot of the resources. The other thing is we would start to think of them as a higher functioning animal than they are. And this happens a lot with beekeepers, particularly new beekeepers who want to think that honeybees are much more in tune and much more sophisticated when it comes to emotional range. We assign human emotions to honeybees and therefore we assign human emotion to behaviors that we observe the honeybees doing. But what's really happening is they're insects. They are uh, trying to survive. And the way they survive is they get resources. They protect themselves by getting to some kind of environment that will shield them from weather. They're social, so they need to be in the company of other bees to survive. And they need to reproduce. And all of this comes together to enable them to reproduce and perpetuate their species. So honeybees have a perennial nest and the number one resource they're going to be bringing in there aside from water is going to be sugar. And they'll go to great lengths to get it, even if that means cleaning off a wasp. So in the video, there were honeybees rescuing another honeybee that was covered in honey because they knew she was in trouble. I say they smelled honey and they went to get the honey resource off of that bee. So, those are my thoughts. If you have comments about that, or you really do think they have empathy, then uh, write down where you found your information and why you think that's so down in the comment section. So question number two comes from Richard, Branford, Florida. I'm keeping bees in long Langstroth hives and I believe I need to treat for mites. I have tested and have found very high counts and they have been using, I have been using Formic Pro 
which has good results. I would like to be able to use oxalic acid, but not sure how to treat on a long Langstroth hive. Now my real question is, I can't find any instructions on any product for use on long Langstroth hives. So is there any legal way to treat a long Langstroth hive? As all labels state, it is illegal to use a product in any way except what is on the label. How do you treat your long Langstroth hives? Okay, sorry for a long convoluted question. No, this is a good question because people do um, have horizontal hives right now. The long Langstroth, the easy part of that is it uses Langstroth frames. So we can equate that to vertical boxes. So for example, uh, a lot of the dosage says per brood box. So if you had a 10 frame Langstroth deep brood box in a standard Langstroth hive, then you would have 10 frames on your horizontal hive as well. And if those are the ones with brood on them, then that would be considered equal to a deep box when you're trying to meter out what your dose is going to be for treatment. So likewise, if there were 20 or 15, then you would get add to the next dose, which would be a double box, double deep. So that's how it goes. And they're based on brood boxes, not the number of boxes of comb you have, for example, or capped honey. So the other thing is, it's very easy to treat horizontal hives. I've done it myself because I keep Layens hive now, the long Langstroth hive, observation hives, and the vertical, of course, Langstroth standard hives. I use the same method for all of them. And so in the cover image today, the thumbnail, you saw this. I didn't, I haven't actually used this one yet, but this is just for example, because I had it on the shelf, so it's convenient to show you. Any of the oxalic acid vaporizer systems that use a bowl like this. Because there's pans, there's another method where you have the pans and you, you scoot your pan of oxalic acid through the entrance and it's flat. It needs a wide flat entrance to do that. And then it heats up and sublimates the oxalis into the air inside your hive and it lands on the surface of everything in there. And that's how we kill Varroa mites. Uh, the bees walk on it, the mites walk on it. It damages the mites as far as we know because the mites metabolize it through their feet because they have these soft pads. Honeybees also have these translucent pads on their feet if you look very closely and that's why they can walk up windows and things like that. So they think it's because these pads become the mode through which that oxalis gets into the metabolism of the mite and it also can potentially damage their feet but they know that the mites that die from it have ingested it so it's in their system. They don't actually eat it, but just like you can get some medications right through your skin, they're getting the oxalic acid through the pads of their feet and then that's getting into their metabolism and they die. So the reason I bring this up is um, all you need is a quarter inch hole in the back. And this is why I kind of like these better. I know these are expensive. Laura Bees, if you go, and by the way, here's the website right here if you want to check that out. LauraBees.com. And uh, the good thing about this is you can put your oxalic acid in this and put this through a hole through the back. And then some people think, well, what if I put it up top? What if I put it down below? Does it make a difference? No, it doesn't. And I did direct observations myself. 
So all you need is a quarter inch hole. You put this through when it's not in use. I use a quarter 20 threaded thumb screw and I put that in there as a placeholder because otherwise the bees are gonna seal up the hole. So this has a temperature readout on the back and it also has an on off switch. So when you're ready to use it and you want it to warm up, you turn it on, but this requires that you plug it in. So you need an extension cord out there. There are lots of options, but these are convenient because of this tube. I also use the ProVap 110 and that's another unit Similar to this, costs almost twice as much as this one does. The oxalic acid goes into this little cup right here, dosed based on how many brood boxes you have. Follow the dosing on the package. And that's why I'm not giving you an exact gram dosage right now, because that may change through the years, through time. So if you're watching this video later, you would know to look at the label to know what the dosing currently recommended is. So anyway, then you put this on here, well, it goes upside down, and then when you flip it over, it falls into the pan, heats up, sublimates, shoots out, goes right into the hive. And the reason I say I like this better than the pan is when you stick the pans in, those are cheaper, by the way, when you stick those in there, where is it? Right under the brood. So if that gets really hot right there, some of the bees react and go after your pan until it cools off. That's why when you pull it out, sometimes there'll be dead bees in there because it's right under the brood. So if this just goes through the three quarter inch thickness of your wood in the back and then it sublimates in there and the bees start fanning, it circulates all through the whole hive. But where's the hot spot? There isn't one because the hot spot's here. This is taking the place of the pan that would otherwise be inside the hive. This stays outside of the hive. Big advantage. And also I have, as mentioned before, observation hives. And I just got asked yesterday, what happens if you need to do something in that observation hive? Because we have the little pull-out trays underneath of them so we can see, are there varroa destructor mites in there? If there are, you can treat right through the wall of the observation hive. And that's how I made my video to see how honeybees react to oxalic acid vaporization. We also get to see what the mite drop is because then we clean that tray off. So before you do any mite treatments, if you have a removable board underneath your hive or a tray, for those of you who have removable trays housed in your hive bottom boards, pull those out, give them a really good clean, then put them back in, then do your treatment, and 48 hours later, you're gonna see what your mite drop is. And uh, this is very effective for phoretic mites. So I know here, Richard says he uses Formic Pro. Formic Pro is in pads and it sits directly over your brood frames. And you have to have a strong colony of bees because you're gonna lose a lot of them. It works through the caps, so phoretic mites or mites that are in your brood, in the pupae, sealed up, it's still effective for those. And uh, you can use it with honey supers on. So that's the other part of reading labels and finding out if it's legal to use what you're about to use with your honey supers on. That's why I have Formic Pro on the shelf. I've never had to go to that level yet because I've gotten them under control with oxalic acid vaporization. If I did this and I still had mite problems and I had a heavily populated colony of bees, then I would go to Formic Pro. Unfortunately, Formic Pro, the new batch that I have, only good. it's only good for two years. I think I'm gonna see it reach its shelf life limit without being used, but that's good news because it means I don't have those. So anyway, that's what I would use. That's how I would gauge, you know, how much of a treatment to use uh, for horizontal hives. With the lay-ins hive, you're going to be guessing. So, uh, good news is my lay-ins hive does not have a high mite count. 
I don't know why, but I'm glad they don't. So there's that. Moving right along. Next question, number three. Linda from Falston, Maryland. Uh, do you recommend solid bottom boards, sealed, no upper ventilation, and the entrance, I have a homemade screen, so there is a ventilation with a small opening on it. I live in very humid summer climate and worry about nectar, never dehydrating, and mold buildup. So I'll answer, this is a two-part question, so I'll answer that one first. Yes, I use solid bottom boards or screen bottom boards that are contained underneath. So those would have an insertable tray and underneath that screen, it would be completely closed off. So I don't use any screen bottom boards that are open to the air. And we have a single entrance, just one, and that's the same year round. Summer or winter, the size of the entrance can be a little larger. And as described here, uh, depending on the hive configuration, sometimes we roll aluminum screen, like aluminum window screen, and we put that on both sides and leave the center open for the bees to come and go, but it adds to the ventilation. And just like this year, looking at our relative humidity, high 80s, even in the 90s. So that makes it very hard, regardless of how large your entrance is. That makes it hard for the bees to dehydrate. It makes it hard for people to perspire and cool down through perspiration if your humidity is so high that the perspiration doesn't evaporate off of your skin. That's how our own cooling system works. Similar for the bees and also, of course, in the trying to dehydrate their honey down to get it down to the percentage where they would do their wax cappings. So that's very interesting stuff. Also, I do not use an upper entrance. I keep insulated inner covers on and that will be insulated covers will be on all my hives going forward. The only ones, the only exception to that would be my observation hives and they all will have thermal blankets going over them that are held on with magnetic buttons. So kind of cool there. But yeah, that's it. And uh, I don't worry about, I haven't had any mold issues or anything like that either. So uh, that should do it, but that's what I do. So maybe your climate, you may have to do something else, but that's my current configuration. And if the hive is sized right for the population of bees that are in there, you shouldn't see any mold or anything because they're very good at policing up the interior surfaces of their hive if the population is big enough. Number two, it says excellent info about prepping for winter versus pol population increase. I'm in zone 6B. How would I know I've got my winter bees versus still have my autumn bees? Will they be, will their activity be different? Okay, well, uh, we're going to come into the end of the nectar flow. Temperatures are going to drop. And uh, the winter bees that she's talking about, and to answer this right away, you can't tell uh, looking at them. Because what they are, they're referred to as fat-bodied winter bees. And these fat-bodied bees can be made at any time. Uh, so in a period of dearth, for example, there have been examples of fat-bodied bees taking over the brood area and serving as nurse bees because they can do so. They've stored more resources in their bodies. So what's different about them? Well, most of the fats that are stored in your normal worker bees, including the nurse bees, would be focused in the abdomen. So with these, they have the focused uh, extra fat in their heads, their thorax, and their abdomen. So they're very different. Outwardly, they're not. We can't look at them and go, oh, look, Fat-bodied winter bees, thank goodness they're making those. But that's also why near the end of the year, nutrition quality is paramount for your bees. Because what are they making? 
the queen is laying eggs and they're producing fat-bodied winter bees. Some entomologists think that we should actually add them as a separate cast in the hive because they're so different. We have the queen, we have males, which are drones, and we have female worker bees. There should, some people think, there should be a fourth that includes fat-bodied winter bees that are not always present, but neither are the drones always present. So, food for thought for the geniuses out there that are doing that background research and can classify things. But uh, you're not going to know the difference. So, my take on it is always make sure that your bees have premium forage available, good conditions, well-constructed hive equipment, protected from weather, and uh, do the things that you can do to keep them healthy, including monitoring for mites and disease. We focus so much on mites, we forget often they could have nozema. So what would you be doing after the final nectar flow, after your honey's off and everything else? That's when people boost with heavy syrup if the hives are light. I don't if my hives are heavy, and they all are, and they all were going through last winter. So they came out in the spring with a whole bunch of surplus honey that I had to deal with. And I'd like to uh, add a little fluff on that since I'm thinking about it right now. Uh, I've often said it doesn't hurt to leave surplus honey on through winter if you're trying to condense your hive and you can't because there's wall-to-wall bees in there. Uh, and then you think, well, just leave, you need to leave all that surplus honey on there and then you can harvest it in spring. So I'm changing on that. I don't want to harvest that in spring. Uh, that honey didn't taste very good. I mean, it's okay. It's a little stronger flavor. I don't know why it would be different having set out there all winter in the hive, the frames that are untouched by the bees, usually the first position and the 10 position frames. The frames in the middle, they consume up near the top because the column rises through the center, but they ignore their extra honey out here. So it's also gonna be interesting to see the horizontal hives go through there, but what I would do is I would feed those frames back to the bees when Instead of putting out um, feeder stations with sugar syrup at the end of the year when they're all intensifying their attacks on each other, I would take my stored winter honey and I would put that out and let them rob that clean and they will chew down, they'll chew the caps off, they'll clean all the cells out They'll get every last micro ounce of sugar that's in those frames. And then those can go to storage for spring expansion instead of storing, you know, or trying to extract and use honey that was left over from winter. Now, maybe it's the forage. I don't know. That could be part of it, too, because there's asters. There's uh, goldenrod. Here we have Maximilian sunflowers. Late season cosmos go right to frost. So there's a lot of forage out there that is kind of notoriously strong flavored. I've never had the asters, uh, the honey that comes from that, that smells like dirty socks, people say, but it is that late season honey has a strong flavor that not everybody likes. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not as great as a lighter colored, the honey that we're getting right now, for example, is super mild up here in Pennsylvania. But so anyway, food for thought on what you can do with all that stuff. But we don't know when the fat bees are fat bees or not. Uh, their behavior is not different. They kind of remain as nurse bees and where a forager may live for five weeks. These uh, fat-bodied winter bees can live for five months plus. So their resources there 
For example, if your entire colony ran out of its resources, of course, they still need water, which comes in the form of condensation in the wintertime. Uh, but it would be these fat-bodied winter bees that would be the last stand in absence of other nutrition in the hive. They would use their own metabolic resources to feed small clusters of brood to get that colony through to spring. That's what they're for. So that's about it on that. Next question, number four, comes from Daniel. It says, uh, my question is, if a double stack nuke will winter in PA, and they do, by the way, why is it such a struggle to make a top bar hive make it through winter? Just vertical versus horizontal movements? Yes, it is. Um, I've had friends here that I've never had a top bar hive, so I have to say that. Uh, I've had friends for years here that went to um, kind of training programs up in Vermont, and top bar hives are being used up in Vermont. So somebody's got a configuration that works in cold weather. So it can't be just the cold weather. But the, the question is this comparison between the two. I might as well use my Layens hive here uh, to show the difference kind of. The Layens hives I have, because now I have two. Yeah, these three entrances across the bottom, but this particular one, no venting on the top anywhere. So insulated sidewalls, I got mine from Dr. Leo Sharashkin at Horizontal Hive. Dot com. So the thing is, it is, in my opinion, the configuration. And I've been thinking about this a lot, in fact, because I wrote things off in my mind. Now, I don't intentionally want bees to die, but I have colonies that I have not invested much effort in. It's like when we pick a colony of bees and we put a lot of effort, a lot of work, and a lot of emphasis on them, uh, we want them to make it. We expect them to make it. We do all the right stuff. I was about to mention earlier Nozema, for example, at the end of the year. One of the things you put in your sugar syrup is Hive Alive. And that would act on Nozema spores that exist in the gut. So it impacts your bees negatively. So we, if we use Hive Alive with our sugar syrup, then that would help your bees suppress Nozema spores. They get healthier and then they're, of course, have more resources going into winter. And I put these bees in my five-frame nucleus hives, and I did one over once, I had 10 frames. So the equivalent of a single 10-frame deep, which Dr. Thomas Seeley says is an optimal hive configuration as far as Darwinian beekeeping goes, those who don't need to make a profit from their bees, that we're keeping bees more closely to the size of the cavity that they would occupy in a tree that they found, for example. But now we have these horizontal hives, and these are great. I'm liking them. But as we know, the bees, they build up their beeswax in here on these frames. And so we're going to quote Dr. Leo here. So we have these frames. They are wired. Look, here's a wired example. Here's the frame with honeycomb on it. Now I'm in a pickle right now, coming up tomorrow in fact, Saturday, I'm going to be making a video because I'm going to inspect my Layens hive and this is the problem that I have right now. It's a good problem as far as beekeeping goes. This entire frame is wall-to-wall -wall brood. And because it's wall-to-wall -wall brood, if winter were to hit right now, 
where would the bees go uh, instinctively when they want to access resources that uh, they would have stored through the winter? Now we know because it's a horizontal hive, they store their resources out and away from the entrance. So with my lay-in hives, even though they have three entrances across the front, these two entrances are closed. This is the only entrance I leave open. And this is the south-facing side of the hive, and this is the east. So they naturally concentrated all of their brood to this end of the hive. And without a queen excluder, I'm saying this over and over because I really want the message to get, to sink in, is that they keep their brood near the entrance. They naturally progress to honey stores only for these farther frames. No queen excluder. And it's working. So here's the other part. But now they've got brood all over this whole thing. It's going to get cold. Someone else said, as it gets colder, they'll hatch out their brood from the upper parts of these frames. This is what I hope happens. I've never had one get through winter, so I'm fingers crossed this year. If they start filling this top part with honey, capped honey, and then as the brood area dwindles going into fall, they concentrate down here, and then in a perfect scenario, they would migrate up through the honey stores going into winter. Now again, my horizontal hives, the long lang and the lands hives have insulated covers, no top vent. So the only ventilation source would be the bottom entrances here. Okay, so now what they have to do, and, and Bees fail to do this in Langstroth hives. That's why I'm very skeptical. I mean, I hope it works. But here's what bees fail to do. They cluster because they keep brood even in winter. Here, the winter brood is at its smallest historically at the end of November, beginning of December. And that's when we sneak in that oxalic acid vaporization treatment because we have mostly phoretic mites and you can knock them out, 96% of them. And if you're very effective at that, at the right time, right place, then uh, you may not have to treat these colonies for mites the following year. Their numbers may never get up there. So it's a very good impact time. Anyway, so the mites are done. The bees want to go up to the top. There they are. This happens in Langstroth hives. They migrate up, they consume the honey, they cluster, they have brood in the middle. And the brood pattern is small, but guess what? They don't want to abandon it. So they are hesitant to move sideways. This is why it's so frustrating for beekeepers in the spring. And I get these questions all the time. My bees died, there was plenty of honey in the hive. And here's the cluster, here's the honey two frames over. In some cases, one frame over. So a consumed frame of honey, the very next one, wall-to-wall -wall capped honey, and the cluster stayed right here because it never got warm enough in the hive for them to migrate as a cluster because what are they not going to abandon? They are not going to abandon the brood. So two things need to happen. One, the insulated cover helped my bees migrate to the sides and consume more in a standard Langstroth hive. So these horizontal hives, this is how I'm thinking, they need even more insulation on the top so that there's a heat capsule up there that does not vent off so that when we get a moderate increase in temperature during winter, those 
that cluster loosens a little bit. Now we know historically that's 60 degrees or more. With the broad side of this facing the sun, they can actually achieve that. These are insulated with lamb's wool, sheep's wool. I don't know if they were lambs. Sheep's wool, nice thick sidewalls. But the insulated covers have made all the difference because this worked in my nucleus hives. All I did was take the top box. It has R10 rigid foam board on top that extends down about six inches. So just the top box, the bottom box, not insulated at all. They came through so strong they made me deal with too many bees in spring. So I'm hoping to make the same thing happen with my horizontal hive. So my question for the person that wrote this for Daniel is, for these top bar hives, if I were doing top bar hives, my number one focus would be no top venting, number one. If you've got multiples, great opportunity to make comparisons and do some with, some without. Let this one have vents and your your quilts and whatever else people put up there, their you know, their wood chip pillows and all that stuff that they're they're fixated on. If you want to use that, you can try that. And then have this one over here, heavily insulated cover, no venting on the top. See what happens. The most interesting thing last winter in particular was uh, to go out and see that the hives without sidewall insulation flew the quickest, foraged the earliest, and gained new resources much earlier than those that had heavy insulated walls on their hives. Now, of course, the argument is, and it's a good one, that because they had insulated walls and an insulated cover and an insulated bottom, those bees were still using conserved resources inside the hive, so the climate was more favorable inside the hive. Therefore, they didn't have to forage right away. Where my colonies that had no insulated sidewalls were foraging early and bringing in new resources as soon as the willow trees and everything else started producing pollen and nectar. So, old resources, insulated sidewalls, did okay. New resources, uninsulated sidewalls, very active, performed equally. The difference was they were out and active to do it, to replenish what they had lost. These were still feeding off of what they had retained through winter. So I run both just to see what's going to happen. But the big change for me last winter was, and I'm saying this now because a lot of people are configuring for winter or thinking about it, Supplies. There are things I want from Betterbee, from Dadent, from anywhere, and, and they're out of stock. And it says out of stock. There's equipment I want. I'd like to have it. I don't need it. It's a want. But uh, the thing is, they're out of stock. So I'm telling you, if you're listening now and you need equipment for winter, insulated inner covers, the game changer for me, this insulated inner cover. It's got a hard plastic bottom. It's slightly dome-shaped, so it's supposed to help with condensation, but as far as I could tell, there was no evidence of condensation forming on it anyway. But the bees being able to get right up against an inner cover that's insulated, so even if you're making your own, an insulated inner cover, but please don't put that rigid polystyrene in direct contact with your bees. Like, don't just put a rigid foam of polystyrene that your bees can get to. 
they often perceive that as pulpy wood and they start to chew it away. So your bees are chewing away plastic because that's what polystyrene is. So this plastic encasement is what protects it because that's the surface for the bees. They can also clean it, but the polystyrene insulated part is an insert up here. And then above that, I create a box that I can put food on, hive life on it, and I'll say that again, say it too much. But uh, that's what I put over that center hole. And uh, then the box is insulated and then a B-Max insulated outer cover. So insulated hive top, got my bees through winter. Now, horizontal versus vertical. That vertical column, because my bees are, if we've got the five over five, and some of them are triples now because they're too populated, uh, the nucleus hives. So five, five deep frames in each box, three boxes high to accommodate the number of bees that are in there. And then what happens is they've drawn out comb, they've capped it. So now I have honey resources that uh, I can use because they're deeps. So I can use them in any brood box in my apiary, except the lands boxes because lands are unique in every way. And hopefully tomorrow we'll be doing that split and uh, populating the new lands hive, which is ready to go. So, but the bees that are down here by the entrance, as winter comes, where are they gonna go? They can stay in their cluster and they can very slowly migrate up and uh, stay over their brood, narrow box, vertical channel, which now that we think about it, and many people have thought about it, this isn't new, they've been thinking about it this way for more than 100 years. The cavity that they occupy is cylindrical and it's tall. So if you've got nucleus boxes that are stacked over, those are more favorable conditions for your bees than to have broader boxes that are shorter and wider instead of narrow and tall. And plus I can push all those together. So they're on, they're on racks together too. So my resource hives are turning into almost primary hives for backyard beekeeping. They do extremely well. And of course the, the heat accumulates up there it does not vent off and that's the warmest part of the hive in the middle of winter so yes let us know so i hope daniel will let us know what he decides to do and what the configuration currently is and what the history has been have your top bar hives failed every time because if they do something needs to change dr demons dr demings 14 points of total quality management, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is a form of madness. So if things are not working, we need to make incremental changes until we find the sweet spot for what works with our bees from integrated pest management all the way through hive configuration, insulation, and the management of the interior climate of your colony, of your hive. Question number five, Valus. Valus, Valus. Is there a way to remove bee bread from comb that won't destroy the comb itself? So for those of you who don't know, bee bread is just pollen that the bees bring in. It's one of the few resources that bees bring in. Foraging bees get pollen from, of course, flowers. And they bring the pollen in and uh, the forager puts it directly into the cell. Once it's in the cell, Nurse bees get in there and they start pushing it down and they start amending that and they chew the pollen and they put 
um, nectar in it and they mix it with honey and even they'll encapsulate it sometimes it'll get a shiny surface on it but this causes fermentation that's why we smell it when there's a whole bunch of pollen in a hive it smells different so when you find that it kind of smells yeasty uh, when you're opening your hive look for all the pollen because that's in there now here's the problem uh, we've all seen I haven't seen this a lot but often in the extremities of the frames, you'll have pollen stored up there and the bees tend to ignore it. Uh, the bees like to use new pollen first. So pollen that's 48 hours old is prime for the bees. It's been through fermentation. It's got, uh, it's bread. That's why they call it bee bread. It's ready to go. So then the nurse bees consume it. It becomes part of the resources that they provide to the queen and to developing brood. So it also goes into their digestive system. So nurse bees themselves have it in their microbiome. So this is all important stuff. Now the problem is sometimes pollen is something the bees don't want. And when that happens, they don't clean out their cells. So they just leave it. In fact, in some cases they entomb it, they seal it up and there it stays. So what can you do that won't destroy the comb itself? Well, the problem is when the bees need it again, like in spring when we're inspecting hives, because let's be honest, we're not inspecting hives in the middle of winter if it's really cold because we would be opening everything up that doesn't need to be opened. So if you were doing an inspection and there was a lot of pollen out well away from the brood area and there were frames right next to the brood area that aren't necessarily full of resources that the bees need, for example, if there's a bunch of honey right next to the brood but not pollen frames, I would do a little switcheroo there and move my honey cap frame out a little bit from the brood and store that pollen frame right next to the brood. So because we're going into a nectar flow here, this is the time to do it. Because what are the bees going to do if there's pollen right next to it and they don't want it? They're going to clean it out or they're going to consume it. So if they don't need it, they'll clean it out because they'll make room for new stores during this big nectar flow that's coming up. So, and then the capped honey is still there as a reserve because also, you know, I don't like to pull any resources from the bottom box, from the brood box. We pull our resources from the supers, the extra, the surplus for honey and things like that. But let's say they don't consume it. Let's say it's been there all through winter. Now the new pollen's coming in. They're going to ignore it. I don't know of a good way to clean out pollen that's stored in those cells. Usually it's the older frames older comb and uh, it might be time to just scrape them out anyway you can try to power wash them out of there but also sometimes uh, it's been speculated that uh, the bees are leaving that pollen alone because it may come from a plant that has uh, systemic pesticides and so the pollen could be something wrong with it and then uh, they're just sealing it up rather than consuming it so there's another reason for possibly rotating that out of your hive entirely so but i don't know of a way to clean out the pollen uh, unless you want to go cell by cell and, and scrape them out without causing some kind of damage to your frames that the bees will probably repair anyway. But really old pollen, I scrape them out and get rid of them if it's obvious that they're not going to use it. Question number six from Mark, Salem, Virginia. Our house needs a good washing and talking with folks. Some use plain water and pressure, risks damaging the siding and soffits, etc but it's just water. Others use a dilute bleach solution. Wet first, dilute with bleach, then kill the mold with plain water and it won't do as well. Then rinse. 
So the dilute bleach solution is diluted, diluted even more, but my question is, obviously, the bleach solution is supposedly okay for plants, etc., but what about nearby bees? If they find a puddle of this in this hot weather, will that cause a problem? I know the better safe than sorry default, but we do have a decent amount of mold to be addressed. Do you have any experience or references? So here's the thing, bleach... Where do the bees, the bees don't shy away from bleach at all, first of all. So water that's diluted with bleach, and that's what it sounds like we're using here. There's no description of detergent, so it is just water with bleach. I don't see that as very alarming, and that's because bleach dissipates fairly quickly. And for those who use pool chemicals and things like that, swimming pools that use bleach in their water uh, to control that, that environment and make sure bad things don't grow in your water, honeybees just line up for the chlorinated pool water. Um, so the other thing is we've even used bleach as uh, something to extend your sugar syrup or to sanitize bee drinkers for configurations that are difficult to remove. So rather than remove it and avoid that black mold that starts to form in there, you can put a, I can't remember if it's a teaspoon or a tablespoon per gallon of syrup of bleach. It might be a tablespoon. It came from uh, scientific beekeeping with Randy Oliver. So you can add that to it and it'll smell like swimming pool water. If bees don't like it, they won't drink it. And especially when it's outside and, you know, we always need to provide water resources for our bees all year round, but uh, specifically during the summertime because they need water for everything. And I put out my Mineral salt feeders, the bees are on those more this time of year than they have been at other times of the year. So a teaspoon of sea salts uh, into regular water out there also, for those who are just listening about that, have that available in addition to fresh water. And that's why I think this is not that big of a problem. So you added some bleach, it's diluted, and you use that to hose off the siding on your house to kill mold and things like that. Uh, by the time it hits the soil, it's dissipating into the soil. If there were a puddle, the bees could certainly avoid it. So my fix for that would be provide alternate resources of water. Make sure that they have fresh, clean water available elsewhere so that the bleach water that you're putting out there is not the only source of moisture for your bees. So that's the other part of it. And I don't think that uh, it's that big a risk. I don't think the bees are going to go nuts over the bleach water to begin with. And I think based on, you know, I don't know what the dilution factor is here, but uh, bees don't like it. They're not going to take it. And uh, they do drink bleach water if it's in a pool. Even some people put a tiny amount of bleach tablets in their bird baths and things like that. And honeybees will be along those edges drinking it. Now, we don't want our bees to deal with bleach inside their hive. You know, living bees with bleach inside the hive. I wouldn't do that. But I think this description, I think you're okay. I don't think you have to be concerned about it. Question number seven, Brad Wamsley. Uh, do you happen to know how long a Varroa mite can live without a host? Varroa destructor mites. That's their phoretic, well, without a host at all. We know that this thing needs a host. We know that it needs to get these little mouth parts into the body of a bee so that it can feed off of its resources. Now, then what's it gonna do? It's gonna scoot into a cell that's gonna go into its pupa phase. So just before the cell gets capped, this leaves the body of a bee and goes right in there. So the mite's goal 
is never to be for very long away from the body of its host, which is a bee, or then they're going to feed off of the developing pupa. So how long, let's say, so, so we catch these mites and a half. That's why I like this question. I have a ready answer, but I'm taking the long way around the barn on it. So sometimes I'll pull frames and they'll have little mites on them. And then I'll set those frames on a rack so I can take photos and make videos. And they don't have resources other than, in some cases, the capped uh, pupa that are there. So if you're pulling frames of drones, for example, as a method of controlling mites, and when you pull those out, the drone, uh, the pupa will die. And if, if you put them out so that you can photograph them and everything, the pupa die, the mites leave the body of the pupa and they move around on the frames. How many days can they do that without having to get onto the body of a bee and replenish their resources because they have nothing else to eat now unless they're on a host. They're parasites, that's what they do. Maximum of four days, and then they just die out. So if you put them in little petri dishes and let them scoot around in there, and you'll get them for a couple of days and they start getting really slow, but they're still alive. And then by the end of the fourth day or end of the fourth day, that's when you'll have a bunch of little dead mites. So if others have another experience, I'd be glad to hear that. But if you're getting pet mites and you don't want to have them on bees, they, uh, in the absence of their hosts, they're going to be dead in four days or less. So I don't know why that's an important question, something to know, but it's a curious thing. So for example, if your bees all absconded from a hive and there were a bunch of mites that were not prepared for that and they were left behind. And uh, because for example, if they're under capped larvae, capped pupa, and uh, all your bees abscond and they abandon a bunch of capped Pupa. So you've got, whether it's worker bees or drones, and the drones are most likely to have them. But if the bees all leave and the hive cools down and those never hatch, or only a couple of them emerge from those cells, then the mites can come out of those, but they don't have a new host to go on to because what's their favorite bee to go after? The nurse bees, because they're the most nutritious for the destructor mite. So then in the absence of a host, we've got them scooting around uh, uh, brood frame that uh, won't provide for them. So then they die. Question number eight, James Barron. What do you think about supplying the hive with water during summer's constant 95 to 120, 112 temps using a rapid round feeder? Seems like it would be helpful in three ways. One, supply humidity. Two, make it easier on them to get water. Three, as a thermal battery to help them maintain a constant temp, the same way as putting jugs of water next to tomatoes at night during early spring cold snaps, that water cools slower than the air. Okay, I've always said this, and I'm gonna reaffirm it. Uh, I don't wanna put water inside the hive. Uh, and just what I described before, make sure there are water resources outside the hive because what we want is for the bees to be able to control the climate inside the hive as much as possible to their liking. And we don't always know uh, exactly what humidity level they're at, what humidity level they want. And for example, they're doing other things that increase humidity in there, bringing in nectar, for example, making honey. And then we know that they're very good at 
sending out the water foragers, which are, that's a senior job in the beehive. So those are your senior foragers that are basically wrapping up their nectar collection and pollen collection duties, and they're finishing off as water bees. And the bees that go out and collect water don't collect nectar for obvious reasons. One would be that the nectar would be diluted by the water. So the water bees go out, they find the water, and it's our job to make sure that they have some available. So I've heard about bees gathering under condensation of air conditioning units and things like that in really arid areas, but I think it's much better to let the bees do that function themselves rather than try to stock the hive with water and create kind of a, a swamp cooler, a humidity system for the bees. Let them do that because they're perfect at it. And uh, then you've got water to deal with inside the hive. So I'm not, not a big fan of that. Um, yeah, I would, I would say provide the water resources away from the hives, let the bees access that on their own and not put water in the hive. Okay, that was it for today. And now we're in the fluff section. So it's going to lead me to, first of all, we have videos coming up, activities coming up in the hive. I have not been able to generate videos because I've been very busy doing photography. So hopefully next week, within the next couple of weeks, we're going to have new videos coming out. Layens Hive, Long Langstroth Hive, we're going to inspect a nucleus and I'm going to explain uh, how I hived a swarm in there and how I got a swarm that was parked on the front of it to move in. And then we notice that they have pollen coming in. So they should be doing well. I'm trying not to inspect that hive until it's been in there for at least 10 days. It's been eight days now. So that's coming up. And uh, I want to give a shout out today. Now, sometimes I like to give a shout out to a channel that's just starting up. This channel is not just starting up. This is an established channel with 108,000 substitutes subscribers, not substitutes, 108,000 subscribers. And the reason that I like this, by the way, and I want to thank Peter for bringing this channel to my attention. So give him credit. Um, I'm from Missouri originally. So I was born in Missouri. I went to a high school suburb of St. Louis and uh, had a friend move to Missouri and move to St. Louis who became my best friend while I was in high school. And he was from Gunnersville. Alabama. And why is that even relevant? Why am I talking about it? It's the way he talked. He talked funny. So we would go to our cafeteria in high school and people, girls in particular, would come and sit at our lunch table and just look at him and say, say something. Just let us hear you talk. It's because he had a unique way of, you know, voice inflection. And there were some terms that were interesting too, that were Southern. And uh, part of the shout out here is this is about kind of a history lesson on bees in a particular area in Appalachia. And it's called the uh, Appalachian Wild Mountain Honeybees and how they found them. This is the title of the YouTube video. And the thing about it is it's so appealing to me personally is people that talk this way are very good storytellers. So it's the accent, it's the authenticity of the way he communicates and the information that he's sharing that make this a very cool 
video. So the guy's channel, uh, Donnie Laws, D-O-N-N-I-E-L-A-W-S. So that's the channel and the specific video. The link will be down below. Appalachian Wild Mountain Honeybees, how they found them. It was very interesting. So it's kind of beelining early on, way before Tom Seeley uh, did his beelining and following the wild bees, which he uses a trap system for that. This is very interesting, and uh, I just want to see what you think of it. Do me a favor, tell him Frederick Dunn sent you. He'll have no idea who I am, because uh, he covers a lot of different stuff. He's not just a bee channel, but this is a bee story that's worth watching and it's worth sharing about, and I really appreciate the way the guy talks. So that's just the best part of it. And uh, that's it for this week. So... I hope you found it helpful. If you did, please click a like so you know that you've watched this. And I thank you for being here and spending your time today. I hope that you're on top of the fact that your bees are going to be expanding soon if you're in the northern climate here. And uh, be ready to super. We don't want those late season swarms. So thanks for being here. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Mm -hmm.